This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lily Picassi, and with me today is Miriam Tupi. Miriam Tupi is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and co-author of the new book, Superabundance, the story of population growth, innovation, and human flourishing on an infinitely bountiful planet. How are you doing today, Mr. Tupi? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be able to sit down with you and talk to you about your work, so let's get right into it. You outlined the two main sides of the population argument. First, that we need more people, and second, that we already have enough. Through your research, where do you find yourself falling on such a spectrum? Well, I'm a classical liberal, so I believe that the world should have as many people as uh, parents, or rather, the world should have as many babies as parents want. Um, Rather, the book is meant as a... uh, as a as a, a counter argument to those who are saying that the world should have fewer people because we are going to run out of resources. So the basic message of the book is: if you are concerned about not having children um, because you think that we are going to run out of resources, that doesn't have to concern you. You may still decide that you don't want to have any children. Uh, that's up to you. Uh, but um, uh, fundamentally. Uh, to the extent that you are influenced by all of these apocalyptic uh, environmental predictions, um, you should be relaxed about them or more relaxed about them than than you normally are. And this may seem uh, trivial, but it's not, because if you look at uh, public opinion polls, what you find is that a substantial number of people living not just in advanced countries, but around the world, are making their decisions about how many children they should have based on partly these environmental concerns. Yeah, totally. In school, I've studied that population, I've studied population a little bit, and we're taught that although some countries are facing overpopulation issues, there are other countries that are having massive underpopulation issues. If this is like true, do you think that there's a way that these countries can work together to overcome individual issues they're facing? Well, I don't think that any country faces an overpopulation problem. Um, I think that underpopulation could be a concern. In uh, something like 107 countries out of 190 countries in the world, people already have fewer babies than are needed for replacement level, which is to say that to keep population constant, you need about 2.1 children per woman per lifetime. And right now, in 107 countries in the world, is below the replacement level. So the population will peak in about uh, 2060 and then start declining. Uh, but um, I don't think that any country necessarily has to suffer from an overpopulation problem. Uh, so long as they have normal economies, so long as they produce and uh, consume, um, so long as we have peace and international trade, nobody has to suffer from an overpopulation problem. Um, In fact, famines have disappeared from the world outside of war zones. So uh, there is no such thing as an overpopulation problem because the world has an infinite amount of wealth it can produce from uh, from from the resources that already have. Um, and I, I choose my words carefully here. I really do believe that resources that we have can produce infinite amount of value for people, including infinite amounts of food, uh, because we have exactly the same amount of raw materials that 
people during the Stone Age had. Um, and um, our standard of living is so much higher than people in the Stone Age, uh, not because of more resources, but because of new knowledge. So it's knowledge which is really vital. And uh, we can, of course, generate more knowledge if we have more people in the world, especially free people who are capable of uh, thinking and speaking and associating and investing and profiting from their innovations. So uh, fundamentally, uh, I, I don't think overpopulation makes any sense from a logical standpoint. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Lily Picassi, and I'm talking with Miriam Tupi. Mr. Tupi, we've been talking about how overpopulation isn't the issue that we, we've been told, or at least I've been told. Where do you think that this myth comes from? I think it comes from a basic misunderstanding of where wealth comes from or where food comes from, for example. Um, um, it is true that the world has only a finite number of atoms on it, but what you can do with those atoms is potentially infinite. It just uh, depends on human beings and the new knowledge they create. Let me give you one example. Uh, sand has been lying around for billions of years, and then some 5,000 years ago it occurred to us that if we heat sand to about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, we can get it to, to turn into glass. And so we started producing glass beads, which people use primarily for decoration, and soon after that, people started using glass for glass jars. And then sometime later, we started using glass for window panes. And now we are using them as the primary component in the creation of fiber optic cables. So with every step of the way, we have increased the amount of wealth uh, that we can derive from just something as simple as sand. And the difference is, as I said, new knowledge. And of course, we have no idea what we'll be using sand for in the next 200 or 2,000 years. So as you can see, the potential for value creation from finite number of atoms is, is, is infinite. But I think that, that that is the basic problem, is that people, when they look at the world, they see the finite number of atoms, finite number of re resources or raw material. And they think, well, you know, uh, having more people will will use it up. How can you have a finite number of something um, and yet, um, you know, have more people using it? But the reality is that we are not so much using resources as we are using knowledge. And that's the key. I think that that's why people misunderstand um, that even on a planet with a finite number of atoms, you can get infinite amount of value. Okay. Um, in your recent op-ed from Town Hall, you talked about real prices in the discussion of population. Can you walk me through that concept? So in the book, we use time prices. I'll get to it in a second. Uh, basically, there are three kinds of prices. Um, there is the nominal price, which is the price that you see at the pump or in a shop. But to get a sense of whether something is becoming more or less expensive over time, you need to adjust it for inflation. That's how you get to real or inflation-adjusted price. Um, you know, for a long time, Americans didn't have to worry about inflation very much, uh, but we have to worry about it now. So when people look at their paychecks, they are asking, has my salary increased at a higher rate than inflation, in which case I'm becoming better off in real terms. And that's the difference between nominal and real price. The problem with both nominal and real prices is that they don't account to 
what is happening to your wage rate. In other words, they're just looking at prices of commodities and adjusting it for inflation and seeing if something is more expensive or less expensive. But what also matters is whether your wage has increased over that period of time. And time price is measured, basically, time price means how long you have to work in order to afford something, in order to earn enough money to buy something. So whereas nominal and real prices use dollars and cents, time prices use minutes and hours of work. So let me give you an example. Uh, if, um, if a Hershey bar costs a dollar and you're making $10 an hour, then you can buy 10 Hershey bars. But if a Hershey bar increases to $2 an hour, or $2, and you are making $30 an hour, then suddenly you can afford 15 Hershey bars. So the time price is really just how many minutes you have to work in order to buy something. And so long as the time price is decreasing, uh, you are becoming better off. And uh, in the book, we look at hundreds of commodities and uh, um, raw materials, minerals, um, metals, fuels, even some services. And what we find is that things are becoming cheaper in a sense that we have to work fewer and fewer minutes in order to buy them. And of course, if, if you have to work fewer and fewer minutes to buy your food, for example, you can spend the other minutes of working to buy a car or a house and things like that. So that's how prosperity really beckons. That's how you get from being a very poor uh, person living in the third world who can only afford basic foodstuffs to being a very rich person, like person living in the United States, where you can afford all sorts of other things, television sets, cars, trips abroad, and so on. Okay, this is Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm talking with Miriam Tupi, and my name is Lily Picassi. Um, how, how do you take the information and the concepts you know as an economist and relate them to the population discussion? Uh, well, uh, we basically look at the world 200 years ago and say, okay, so in, two, in, in 1800, when Jefferson was president, there was 1 billion people in the world. Today, or rather 15th of November, there will be 8 billion of us. What happened to our standards of living? Well, uh, globally, uh, GDP per capita is 12 times higher. In the United States, it's 24 times higher, adjusted for inflation. So clearly, even though you had this massive increase in population, um, both globally and also in terms of the United States, we are much better off. So I think that we can prove conclusively that having more people in the world has not been a problem. Quite the contrary. Our working hypothesis is that uh, more human beings are better for the planet because of all of this knowledge which we create. And the knowledge that we create is not only uh, does not only go toward making food cheaper, for example, um, you know, by making, for example, our agriculture much more productive, but it goes also into things like environmental concerns. You know, um, it was due to human ingenuity that we were able to come up with nuclear power, which provides plentiful energy for the world, or could provide plentiful energy for the world without any CO2 emissions into the atmosphere. So that is a perfect example how humans can create tremendous amount of value from comparatively little um, resources such as uranium. Do you think that there's a possibility that we won't have the right innovation or that there won't be enough innovation and then that would lead 
to some sort of population crisis? Well, certainly if the world's population peaks in 2060 and then starts declining, and if there is a huge decline in numbers of people, um, uh, or, or alternatively a huge decline in human freedom, because it's not just people, but it's, it's primarily free people who are able to create all of these innovations, then, then economic growth may have to slow down, and then future generations will not see the kinds of improvements in standards of living that we have seen. Um, um, now, the, the alternative scenario, of course, is that the world's population would drop so dramatically that many of the functions that we need in order to, in order to produce uh, stuff uh, will disappear. Um, this has happened before when uh, rising sea levels separated Australia from Tasmania and uh, relatively few people, few thousand people got stuck on Tasmania and then carried on evolving for the next few hundred years until until the Europeans uh, arrived in Australia. And what they found was that people in Australia were much more technologically advanced than people in, uh, in Tasmania. In fact, Tasmania has lost many um, technologies because they had so few people being able to maintain the knowledge, the previously created knowledge. They, 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 they technologically retrogressed. Um, you know, if, if you have only five people who know how to fish and they all get killed in a uh, fishing accident, then uh, you're going to lose that knowledge, right? So th there is, there's always the possibility that if the human species collapse into a few hundred thousand or a few million, we will lose a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the technological know-how that we already have. This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name's Lily, and I'm talking to Miriam Tumphy. Even though all of these innovations you've been sharing with me and all the progress that we've seen throughout history, many people still have a really pessimistic outlook on the future of the world. Do you think that there's cultural influence involved in such a negative perspective that many Americans hold? Yes, but it's not just culture. I think that we have probably evolved to be pessimistic and to constantly look on the, um, on, on, you know, on, on the bad side of life. Um, the world before about 100 years ago was a very inhospitable, cruel place. And um, in a place like that, it is much better to be a pessimist to constantly expect horrible things to happen uh, than, than being an optimist. You know, uh, optimists got eaten by lions if they thought that um, walking unprotected in the bush was a good idea, whereas pessimists who carried a spear probably survived. Um, and um, this sort of inherent pessimism, which is called negativity bias, is deeply ingrained in human psychology. Um, part of the reason but but that has an, an effect on culture as well. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're running a newspaper, then uh, the best way to get your newspaper to sell a lot of copies is by leading with horrible stories, by leading with uh, with bad stuff. If it bleeds, it leads, right? Mm -hmm. um, people are much more interested in reading about horrible things happening than uh, reading about optimistic stuff happening. So I think that human evolution and culture sort of bleed into one uh, into each other, creating a, a an impression of the world 
which is much more negative than than uh, than than it really is. Uh, I mean, it is a fact which we discussed in the first chapter of the book that the world is better off on many different dimensions of human well-being. It is not just GDP per capita, but we are living longer. Fewer babies die in infancy. Fewer mothers die in childbirth. Um, so, you know, we have access to more food than, than our ancestors. Uh, but very few people know about these tremendous advancements precisely because there is no incentive in the media or in culture to, um, to, to really report on those views. Um, about just about every uh, movie about the future uh, is an apocalyptic movie. Um, I, I don't even know if you could make a movie about the future, like sci-fi movie. Uh, that would be that would be a movie about how everything has worked out in the future, because because I'm not sure that anybody would go and see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you can make a movie about a zombie apocalypse or uh, an asteroid striking the Earth or sea levels rising to a point where uh, we will have to live on mountaintops then that's something that people want to see because it's drama. That's all the time we have for today. But thank you so much for jumping on this call with me and talking about your new book. Our guest has been... My pleasure. Our guest has been Miriam Tumphy, and I'm Lily Picassi on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.